Let me begin with a, a kind of a confession. If someone had asked me what, had, what has been one of the, the most testing time for me as a pastor, I've been here for 25 years, what is the moment that was difficult? And, you know, there have been some externally difficult times, but there, there have been a couple times when, it, when, when being the pastor here actually challenged my faith, not as a pastor, but just even as a Christian. And let me explain, over the past 25 years, there have been moments when we've prayed. You know, there there are times when you pray more than just praying. And when when it's heartfelt and it's sincere and you feel like you're pure and you feel like you uh, you did everything that biblically you were supposed to do, James chapter 5, when you call the elders to pray uh, and anointing the person with oil, you pray for a period of time, making sure that your heart is in the right place and there's no sin interfering with your prayer. You pray collectively with others, and so we would pray together as a church. And there have been times when God's answered our prayer. One of our women was diagnosed with leukemia, and God worked in her life, if you recall, for those of you who've been here for a while. A mother was pregnant, and and her babies were in danger. Uh, it was a very complicated situation, and we prayed collectively. And God had so consistently answered our prayers that I thought, yeah, prayer works. That if we just sincerely, honestly pray collectively for God's will, God will hear our prayers. And then something happened in which we collectively prayed. I prayed. I led our church in prayer. We thought it was sincere. It's not selfish. But at the end, God remained silent, and he did not answer our prayer. And I remember just being personally devastated by it and and my faith being challenged. I remember coming to an early early morning prayer, a Saturday morning at 6.30, and and, and, you know, when we have our time of prayer with 30 minutes, we're on our knees or whatever, we're praying, and I... I remember during that moment, I, I was praying, God, you know, am I not righteous enough that you're not hearing my prayer as a pastor? If I'm mobilizing our church to pray, this is perhaps the best that we can do. And if you're silent, what good is prayer? And it was one of the most... Um, challenging times for me in my faith where, where I would have to lead the church and ask us, let us pray, but I wasn't sure if prayer worked, if it was effective or not. We're in this series called Real Conversation, and we've been talking about these uh, issues that are personal and painful, and, and I, I'm so proud of your, all of you that it spurred uh, on great conversation. It's made you kind of a bit more open externally and internally to these issues, homosexuality, of mental illness, of disabilities, of racism and such. But what happens when at the end of all the struggles, we realize that God is silent, that he's not going to hear our prayers? What happens when we are alone in all of this Paul wrote a letter, and if you have uh, not yet done so, you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And we're just going to read that one verse. And I'm not really sure what was going on in the church of Thessalonica. It's a church that Paul had planted. I'm sure he loved those people. He, he led them spiritually. And, and something must have been happening there or something must have happened where there was a collective grieving going on. They must have prayed fervently for an answer, but there was no answer. And they're left perplexed. And he writes to them about their grieving. Let me read. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, not, as others do who have no hope. He's talking about those who are asleep. It's a euphemism. Those who have passed away. He's talking about them grieving. And he's writing to this collective group who apparently has gone through something. And I'm not going to be long, but he's going to talk to them about their loss and about their sorrow. You know, there are some principles that I want to give you, um, and it is not a, a, an opinion that is subjective. It is, there's not a gradient of truth, but this is a, a, a fact, a truth. It doesn't really matter who you are, whether you like it or not. This is just how it is. And the truth is this, that every single person, every single person that you and I know, uh, regardless of how good they are or bad they are, regardless of whether they're Christians or non-Christians, it doesn't matter how long they've lived or how short they've lived, doesn't matter where they have lived a good quality of life or not, but every single person you and I know, including us, will all suffer the same end point, and that is all of us will in the end die. Our life will come to an end. It is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, for God had said of humanity, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In Genesis chapter 6, after the, uh, glo- the, the global flood, God had said and determined that humanity as a whole will have like a shelf life. And I don't know if you realize this, but Genesis 6, 3 says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be, listen carefully, 120 years. There's like a, a built-in expire, expiration date in humanity. Uh, the oldest recorded human being to have ever lived, lived to about 122 years. Every single person you and I know will all uh, suffer the same end point. And while we head toward that end point, there's another kind of a, a truth that is related to that. And it is this, that not only will we all die, but we will all grow old that we are all uh, getting one day closer to our expiration date. That today we are one day closer to our death. And as we do so, Psalm uh, chapter 90 verse 10 tells us this, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. He said, you know, for depending on technology, your, your environment, you, you live up to about 70, you can live up to about 80. This is from the Bible. But he says this, the psalmist, 
yet their span is but toil and trouble, that life will be difficult. That instead of, uh, as we grow older, having vitality and peace, it will be filled with toil and trouble. Uh, We intuitively understand this if we're old enough and we've seen enough of life. I remember uh, not uh, a while ago while I was preparing for a a sermon and I was doing some research, one of the things that I, I, I should have known this, one of the things that stunned me was this. That the older we get, the, the longer we are alive, the more prone we are to two things, that is cancer. And in fact, age is the biggest determinant, the biggest factor in cancer and Alzheimer. The older we get, and, and many of you have lived with this as you see, if you've seen your parents grow older, that the, that the chances they'll contract one or both of these just increases. You know, as a, a pastor, my job, one of my jobs is this, is not only to intellectually teach you the Bible, give you knowledge, but it is to give you uh, the Bible, uh, biblical truth, so that you can use that as a lens, a frame to understand life. In the year 2002, that was when I turned 40. I, I turned exactly 40 years old that year. Celebrated my 40th birthday in March, in November, so not too many months after that. I was at a piano recital uh, for one of our church members' daughter, and I got a phone call from my mom and uh, went outside, and it seemed important. She kept calling, went outside, and I answered the phone, and she said, your father passed away. And... Um, you know, I, 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 I want to be honest, I wasn't super close to my father. And he was not like a super saint or anything of that nature, but uh, he, you know, survived the Japanese occupation. He spoke Japanese because of that. He fled North Korea during the war, as many Koreans ha- had to do. And he, his brothers and he, uh, some actually fought for the North and some fought for the South. He immigrated to the United States alone. Uh, I, I don't know how and the circumstances behind it. It's still kind of a mystery to me. Uh, he and my mom worked as hard as they could to provide for my siblings and me. Toward the later um, years of his life, something you know, changed. I, I didn't quite know what. He was a little bit more confused. And later on, when he was in the hospital, nursing home, hospital, nursing home, and the such, we found out uh, from one of the tests that he had had a stroke. My family, we didn't even know. And in one of those uh, days uh, when he was in the hospital, I came to see him, and he was, of course, much different. I told him, your granddaughters are here to see you. And in a weak voice, he said, I I don't want them to come in. Basically, it's not that he didn't want to see them, but he said, I don't want them to see me like this. But I told him, no, no, you need to see them. So got him ready, and so my girls came in. He mustered all the strength that he had. Talk to them as he would normally in his normal volume of voice that he used to have. 
That's the last time my girls would see him alive. How is it that we are to understand life and, and those moments when God doesn't answer our prayers in terms of, uh, as Christians, if, if there is a God and Christ is our Redeemer, how is it that we are supposed to understand it? Paul writes to this collective group who apparently was grieving at something. And he tells them, but we do not want you to be uninformed. Don't misunderstand. Don't, don't just process it on your own or what the world tells you. Brothers, those who are in Christ, about those who are asleep, it's a euphemism, euphemism that the New Testament uses for those who are dead in Christ, that you may not grieve as others who have no uh, others do who have no hope, and I don't want you to misunderstand. Paul, the pastor Paul, is not telling his church that they are not to grieve. Uh, in fact, the scripture says no, we, we ought to grieve. How is it that Christians ought to respond to loss uh, the same way in some ways that non Christians do? We, we grieve at loss. We weep at loss. We, we look at that space that used to be filled with someone in our lives, but it's no longer there. And, and we weep and we, we grieve at that. You know, the omniscient Jesus Christ who knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead when he went to the funeral, what did Jesus do? He wept. He knew that that death and disease was never meant to be a part of the human experience, but when he saw that, he wept with the family. He wept for himself. And as Christians, when we experience loss, we ought to be careful in trying to over-spiritualize or, or rush people through. You know, the best things that Job's friends did for him was not to give him the right answers. The best things that they did initially was they just sat with him in silence. Philip Yancey in his book, Where is God When It Hurts, said the first step in helping a suffering person is to acknowledge that the pain is valid and worthy of a sympathetic response. But what Paul is telling his church and, and to you and me is this. I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's talking about a category of people who grieve because they have no hope. They grieve without hope. The non-Christians, and I've been posing this particular uh, question to you these past few weeks. If there is no God... How do we grieve? We grieve without hope if there is no God. If there is no God, there's nothing past this life. A, an atheist confesses this online. I have been an atheist for, the most, for most, if not all, of my life. My, sister is, my little sister is one. My mother is probably one. And my father, if religious, has never said a word to me about my religion. I grew up in a secular humanist Jewish community, too. The idea of a God just never made sense to me. And I don't think I 
uh, could believe even if I wanted to. But here's my problem, the atheist said. I am afraid of dying. I am so afraid of dying that if I think about what it would mean, even for a second, I become fixated on the thought and have a panic attack where I reach the point of almost passing out. I believe this person is being logical and consistent with the fact out there there's no hope if there is no God. But what Paul reminds his people is this, don't grieve as those without hope, but grieve as those who have hope. And he reminds us as he goes forward that since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left in the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so Paul is saying there is a grieving that is without hope, and there is a grieving with hope. And grieving with hope says this, not in this lifetime, but there will come a moment that the, that the Lord will return and we will be caught up in the air with him and we will be in his embrace. That we will be in the arms of Jesus whom Isaiah said of in Isaiah 53.3, he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That we will be in the arms of Jesus whom Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 15.20, for as uh, 2021, for, as man, for by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And later on in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus. So even in the darkest, most hopeless moment, the Christian has hope. It doesn't mean that our sorrow and our grieving in this lifetime is lessened. We still need permission to grieve, and, and some of those grieving will last a lifetime, as, as Stephanie Chung shared a few weeks ago at the loss of her son. But we grieve with hope. That knowing that our death is not final, our suffering is momentary, our body will be replaced by the imperishable, and our propensity will be replaced by a pro- uh, our propensity to sin will be replaced by a propensity to glorify God. What is the answer to death and disease? And really, there is only one answer, and it is in Jesus. You know. Um, these talks that we are having, we, we frame it biblically and we uh, invite someone else to talk And I, I, as we are preparing for this series. And even before that, I wanted David Park, our elder, to come and share. And that for those of you who do not know him, he is an oncologist, which is a cancer doctor. He will walk with, develop relationship with 
and, and, and do life with people, uh, oftentimes to their end point. And he and I talk often, and many of our people will talk to him often, and I've asked him to share his uh, perspective and his um, with the lessons that he's been learning. Would you welcome David? Thank you, Pastor Steve. Um, good morning, Living Hope. So, um, <clears throat> months ago, we, uh, Pastor Steve and I were talking about this series that he was um, uh, considering and, and having in uh, the Real Conversation series, and, and all of us um, I, I we're just so blessed, right? And, and, and even at that time, I, was, I thought, man, that's a great, great idea. That's a great idea. Except when um, he said, uh, you'll be one of the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a bad idea. <laughs> uh, in fact, my family thought it was a bad idea. <laughs> my wife, Helen... My uh, oldest daughter, high school, Toby, and my uh, middle school daughter, Abby, they thought it was a bad idea. Uh, only Luke, <laughs> only Luke, my nine-year-old, thought it was a good idea, and, uh, but he also believes I'm a great basketball player. <laughs> I've often been asked why I chose the field of oncology. And, and to be frank, uh, I, I can't really remember the exact reason. I almost want to say that uh, I kind of just fell into it. And uh, by the way, that's not a very good answer for a job interview. <laughs> uh, one of my first rotations as a uh, first-year medical resident uh, was in oncology. Uh, during that month, I was just fascinated by the science and the challenges in the field. Um, I was mentored by some amazing, amazing attendings. Uh, what I could not predict and eventually learned is that I would be allowed to form a most intimate and some would say sacred relationship with many of my patients and caregivers as they journeyed through some of life's most difficult trials. Because of my work, I'm allowed to celebrate many victories, but also grieve and mourn. I'm allowed to witness and be part of really impossible situations when a spouse or an adult child or the family needs to decide whether to continue or to withdraw life support. I, I see people's faiths being tested, and yet finding God and even in the deepest tragedy. I, I really consider this an immense privilege. But also, it, it makes me, a lot of times, it causes me to reflect and to ponder. There's really a lot of turmoil inside of me to try to make sense out of all this. And, and so I stand here in front of you with an opportunity to share some of my reflections in a confession. Um, 
and this very difficult and for many, if not for all of us, a deeply personal issue. And I readily confess, I, I really have no special wisdom. So many times, I look to the Word of God. Because ultimately, that's where we find our answers, right? Not so much, and they're very helpful in books and even Christian books. Um, I do gain insight from my patients and in- wisdom from my pastors and fr- friends and family. But let me first start with a historical perspective, very brief. Uh, in many ways, we live in the best of times. I mean, just think about it. In many ways, compared to history, especially in a place like this, in the United States, we live in the best of times. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we've made tremendous strides in all aspects of life, including health. In my own field of oncology, especially during this last generation, we've seen some incredible advances. We now cure 80 to 90% of childhood leukemias. And this was not so like even 50 or 60 years ago. Actually, the ratio was the opposite. We used to lose 80% of kids. Even more, the last 10 years, advances in cancer diagnosis, therapy are, are just changing at a dizzying pace. We now are learning to harness one's own immune system to fight cancer, something that we couldn't really even imagine. We call this immunotherapy, or you may have heard this, immuno-oncology. I literally have patients who should have really died uh, many years ago, and, but who are alive, working, carrying on almost normal lives after being diagnosed with aggressive, advanced cancers. And, and we must continue to do this. You must continue to strive. The status quo is not acceptable. In fact, our theology, and for the young people here, our theology of work are called to be salt and light, to be stewards of earth, of this earth demands it. In all aspects of life, in our in healthcare, in our schools, our theology demands it that we work hard to make things better, to show glimpses of God's glory and how things were originally intended to be. And at the same time, We know that we lose far too many loved ones to cancer or other illnesses, to accidents, even natural disasters. And no matter how advanced our technology and how sophisticated we may be, our death rate is still 100%. True story, a few weeks ago uh, in our cell group, we're discussing how blessed we were with this series. And uh, obviously the conversation turned to me (laughs) being a last speaker and uh, how this was causing stress. In my life, and I was asking for prayers. Our cell group leader, Peter Cho, and I don't know if Peter's here today, um, he turned to me and asked, Hey, uh, David, what percent of your patients in your practice eventually end up dying? And before I could talk about the diagnosis, staging, treatment, etc., cetera, uh, Scott, I don't know if Scott's here, Scott Ha, he blurted out, 100%. Like, what? <laughs> Yeah, uh, because all of us eventually die. And, and I know that sometimes we make light of this fact, but it is true. And, and this takes me to my first point, and, and which was already discussed today. Death and disease are inescapable realities in our fallen creation, right? And this problem is not just a philosophical or religious discussion or debate. It is personal, it is real, and it is painful. I don't think that I need to give you many examples 
you, you can know. You know yourselves in your own life, life of a friend or a parent, or if you have been spared of all this, just look at your feed on your iPhone, or right. It's not hard to see the grief, the frustration, even anger that is experienced because of our common frailty and mortality. In the good book of uh, the Bible, one book of the Bible where suffering and pain take center stage is the book of Job in the Old Testament. Here we are told about a godly man who for no good reason as far as he could, he could tell suffered incredible hardship. His life was turned upside down and decimated in a matter of weeks, if not days. He lost all his wealth and his livelihood, but not only that, all his children, 10 children just were gone. They perished in one day. And then he was struck with a terrible and painful disease. Job was so beaten down, and his suffering was so great, that in many instances, he literally cursed the day, and he wished that he was never born. Death and disease are inescapable realities in our fallen world. I met Crystal, and that's not her real name. She's a patient of mine, who uh, in the spring of last year, when she was 19, that's when I met her. She was a bright, petite young woman, a freshman in college, a freshman in college full of life. Just imagine, she could have been my daughter Toby's older sister. Unfortunately for her, she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer, the glioblastoma multiforme, which is really rare in young people. In fact, many of you know, Senator McCain just passed away from it. I remember meeting her right after her brain surgery in the hospital room. Her parents were there, two sisters. I've been doing this for almost 15 years, and I still dread going to these rooms, especially when the diagnosis is bad. So we fought together for over a year with surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. I gather experts from our local universities and cancer centers. We fought bravely. I mean, she was so even keeled. She fought so bravely. We built their relationship, her parents too, and, and they were there every, the whole time. And there were even some good times, you know. Um, she loved the angels. Um, she had angels, people come to her in our treatment room. Um, she even decided she wanted to get a job through all this. And in Disneyland, her favorite place, and she got a job. But her cancer was relentless. And after about 15 or 16 months, um, just recently, September 21st, 2018, she went on to be with the Lord. Her family was so incredibly gracious. And, 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 and in some ways, some really awesome work is being done through her now, even now. And I, I just received a card and, and a thank you card, you know, and a celebration of life program and, uh, um, from them. And it has a verse in Philippians, for I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. And, and I know this has special meaning.
for them because I knew, I know, and even though he didn't tell me this personally, I knew through just other people that her father, her father was really, really struggling through this, especially towards the end, seeing her daughter suffer and pass on. There is an unfairness of this all, isn't there? And, and the sadness and pain that our frailty and our mortality brings to all of us. And the story of Crystal repeats itself over and over and over. And there are many crystals, millions of crystals. And, and yes, a lot of us are older, but the pain is still the same, and this is our reality. So how should our response be as Christians? What it is and what can we do? What can our response be? And what's striking in the Bible, as Pastor Steve uh, today uh, mentioned, and I want to reinforce, is that the reaction of grief and frustration and even anger in the midst of suffering is not silenced. In fact, there's nothing unspiritual about it. In the book of Job, he was clearly hurt. He felt betrayed, confused. Why? Why is this happening to me? Angry, hopeless, does God care? He expresses this over and over and over again. Just read through that. He doubted, and at one point, he even questions God's wisdom. And the fact is, God never faults him for that. God never faults him for that. But, you know, I also find something else in the struggle of Job. You know, Job actually wrestles with God through all this. He constantly goes back to him, right? Tim Keller, well-known pastor, he writes in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He, he writes, and I quote, through it all, Job never stops praying. Yes, he complained, but he complained to God. He doubted, but he doubted to God. He screamed and yelled, but he did it in God's presence. No matter how much in agony he was, he continued to address God. In fact, he kept on seeking him. And in the end, God said Job triumphed. God said Job triumphed. And I believe that's one of the answers. One of the answers to this. Pain and suffering have a way of shaping our perspective, don't they? Uh, My patients teach me a lot about perspective, a lot. And I need this daily reminder, really. Many share with me that after receiving the diagnosis of cancer, their perspective changes. The way they look at the world, the way the focus in their life is different. Petty things are not as important. I am reminded almost daily that life is limited and many times unpredictable. I learn that I need to appreciate today and cherish my loved ones that relationships is what matters the most. And this is all true and it's so easy for us to lose perspective in our busyness of our lives and things that we do. But I think as Christians, there's something more to this perspective. Our common frailty and mortality reminds us that ultimately this is not our home. That this is not our home. 
days after his uh, 33-year-old son died in a motorcycle accident, and I know many of you know him, Pastor Greg Laurie of Calvary Chapel, well known for his Harvest Crusades, right? He confessed to his congregation, this is years ago, that he felt that heaven was closer to him. He was devastated, right? That heaven was closer to him and that earth was less attractive to him now. In his book, The Problem of Pain, Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis writes that, call, that, that pain, pain is God's megaphone in a sometimes deaf world that is so into ourselves. Our frailty and mortality are loud reminders that this is not our home. This is not our home. We're not meant to just live and enjoy life, which definitely are God's blessings, but we're meant for something more. We're meant for Him. We're reminded not to be too enamored with this life and the stuff that this life gives us. Our pursuit of happiness and fulfillment should look different. Should look very different from that of the world. And this is so easy to lose. We must regain this perspective daily. When I was much younger, I understood uh, Job's, uh, Job's story as that of a godly guy that went through this really terrible test and then passed it with flying colors and got a bunch of rewards. Right? If, and if you look at that story, at the end, God blesses him and his wealth is restored, maybe even increased. Right? He has more cattle, more sheep, and in fact, he has more daughters and sons. And you think, oh, wow, that's great. You know, Disney ending. But as any parent will tell you, you can never replace or forget your children. You can never replace and forget the 10 children that he lost in the beginning. Though suffering and life's tragedies do not define us, I believe they do leave a mark, and many times an indelible mark. For those who have experienced life's deepest valleys, there's something about you, whether you show it or whether you even know it yourself, that distinguishes you. This mark cannot be manufactured. It cannot be learned from a book or even a Christian seminar. It is learned in the crucible of life. You are God's wounded ambassadors. You are God's wounded ambassadors. You're ambassadors that carry God's message in your life in that special way. Your wounds allow you to speak into other people's lives in a way that many of us cannot. In many ways, you're the only one that truly understands what someone is going through. You're the only one that fully understands what it's like to grow up without a father or mother. And everything that goes with that, everything that goes with that. And you are the one that understands what it's like to live with a debilitating illness that has no treatment or cure. In fact, you're the only one that can fully understand what it's like to raise a child with severe disability and then worry what will happen when you and your spouse are gone. 
You're God's wounded ambassadors. You understand because you have been there, you have screamed to God, you have cried out in loneliness, you were hoping, you hoped and many times disappointed, but, and your faith was tested, but you never gave up, and God met you where you are. You carry his gospel in a special way. You can comfort, you can inspire. The world needs school teachers like you. The world needs counselors like you. The world needs healthcare workers like you. The world needs ministers like you. Many of you know uh, our home builder, Susan, and I get, did get permission from her to share this, who is now uh, legally blind. And she has a remarkable testimony that she shared uh, for the SOLA uh, network. It's, in, it's online. You can read it, and I highly encourage it. And she titled it, Losing My Eyesight and Receiving God's Vision. And it, there she details this really painful journey, right? She, uh, her dreams, her goals, career goals were shattered. Every day she wished that she would just wake up from this nightmare and, and get back to normal life. Right? And, but through her wrestling with God, she says, I didn't get the answer that I wanted. Instead, God told her that instead of her vision... She would heal her heart. She is now God's ambassador in a way that only Susan can be serving a wounded Savior. Susan finishes her testimony with this. I will never be glad about losing my vision, but I know that it is part of his greater plan. I will never be glad about losing my vision. And that makes me satisfied in him. Finally, I want to leave you with this personal confession. Uh, I still have a lot of questions. Unresolved. I ask this a lot, especially during those really tough moments that I, you know, that I just see happening. Why, why does it have to be this way? Right? Why? Did it, did it, is there any other way, God? Is there any other way? And, and I, I, you know, I don't really know the answer to this. But every time... For whatever reason, God takes me back to that night before uh, Jesus was crucified. Remember that night? He was praying by himself, I mean, in agony. Luke describes his sweat as drops of blood, and there's actually a medical condition, a rare medical condition when you're in such agony, and that happens. It's super rare, right? And he says... In the most endearing word, he calls his God Abba, right? Abba Father, right, in Mark. Everything is possible for you. Everything, just like we said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup, take this cup from me, but yet not what you will, but what you, what I will, but what you will. I will never understand the mystery of the cross, the, the, the awfulness and the awesomeness of it. What it really took to save you and me. What happened on the cross was something so painful. And I'm not talking about physical pain. A lot of people died on the cross. That was like a very common Roman form of execution. A lot of innocent people died on the cross. There was something that happened there 
that I don't think any of us will ever, even in the other side of heaven, will ever understand. The triune God, something happened that day on the cross to the triune God. When Jesus took on God's wrath and made him feel utterly alone for the first time in the history of the triune God. As he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Old Testament scholar Francis Anderson writes in his commentary of Job that it is an early sketch of the greatest sufferer. What Job longed for blindly has actually happened. God himself, God himself has joined us in our hell of loneliness. Here, here is a final answer to Job and to all the Jobs of humanity. Jesus, Jesus, and I know we say this all the time, but I think we need to just get it over and over and over again. Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's here with us. He knows what we go through. He understands our pain. He's been through our pain and much more. In fact, he is with our loved ones who are suffering in a way that we can't be as they go through life's difficulties. He came not just to give us answers, but he is our answer. And this and this is where I often find my rest. I often find my rest, and, and this is where I worship. There is this old African-American um, spiritual that, uh, and we, we sing this version frequently of Living Hope. And I, I so appreciate our brethren because you know that many other hymns and songs came, came from a place of tremendous pain. Tremendous pain in a way that those of us who collectively have not gone through it, I, I don't think that we really fully understand that generational wound that they suffered. And it's a very simple song, but, but it's so true. So true, it says, in the morning when I rise, uh, give me Jesus. Right? Um, you, you can have all this world. You can have all this world, just, just give me Jesus. In the, when I'm alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just, just give me Jesus. It is so true. He is our ultimate answer. Jesus, our friend. Jesus, our elder brother. Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our Lord. He is the answer. He is the answer for us, for humanity. He's our answer to the reality of death, to pain, to loneliness. He is a solution. He's God's solution. And he's with us. He's Emmanuel. Thank you for your attention. Let us pray.